We continue on in our study of the epistle to the Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. The glorious and profound book of Hebrews. And specifically to chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11. And we'll be reading through verse 18. Receive now the reading of God's inerrant and inspired word. We read this. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Amen. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Our gracious Lord and our Redeemer, we rejoice in that you speak to us through this very word. And we pray that by God the Spirit, you would now testify to us of our great need for a Savior. That you would renew our minds so that we might know how the guilty can be pardoned. The unholy sanctified. The poor enriched. The needy satisfied. Knowing that the sole solution to all these things point us to the person and work of Jesus. As we now turn our attentions to the preaching of your word, may we always be found among those who not only hear your word, but do your word. Who not only know your word, but live out your word in total obedience. Knowing with great clarity that it is he who takes you at your word, who finds the very source of life. Bless this time we ask for our good and for your glory. It's in the name of the God-man Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Now generally speaking, I believe that uh, most of us, if not all of us in this room, enjoy a good courtroom scene. And perhaps this is the reason for why we find so many legal dramas and TV shows available for us to watch. We're entertained by it. High-profile cases made for the public to consume and to follow. But all those reasons aside, it's within these courtroom settings where we find lawyers on opposing sides giving their opening statements, presenting their evidence, and demonstrating their prowess in their reason, bringing up witnesses to take the stand, to 
testify of what they know and to be questioned. And within this drama of this back and forth that takes place within the court, in my personal opinion, I believe that the highlight is to be found in what they would call the closing argument, where the attorney has the burden to take the entire case and wrap up the main point in a clear, simple, and persuasive manner to summarize the main argument in such a way that it's convincing and credible and compelling. And this is exactly what we have here in our passage this evening. We have here right in front of our eyes the writer's closing argument as he wraps up this most masterful portion of his letter on the doctrine of Christ before moving on to the duty of Christians, beginning in verse 19, which we'll address next week. Now, if you can recall, this letter was originally written to first-century Jewish Christians who were undergoing some of the most intense scrutiny and persecutions, so much so that they were tempted and they were pushed to the very brink to abandoning their faith and forsaking Christ, to turn back to Judaism and its old covenant system. Well, as a response to these discouraged saints of God, the writer of Hebrews pens this very letter to plead with his audience not to turn away from Christ. And he does this not by providing some practical ways of how to escape this oppression, to escape the dangers that face them day by day. It was not by saying that things will eventually get better. But he does so by giving them doctrine. He gives these persecuted Christians truth to hold on to. He encourages his readers by reminding them of who Jesus is and what the Son of God has done and accomplished for them. By recalling back into their minds the supremacy of Christ, both in His majesty and in His ministry. The superiority of Christ's sonship, His ministry, His sacrifice, His better covenant. And as we'll see again and study today specifically, the superiority of His priesthood and His offering. Now, if you take a step back with me, we examine verses 11 through 18 here, examining the writer's closing argument. It can be divided into two sections, which will serve as our outline for tonight. First, we have in verses 11 through 14, the eternal perfection. I've labeled it the eternal perfection. And second, verses 15 through 18, eternal results. Again, if you take notes, verses 11 through 14, eternal perfection. And verses 15 through 18, eternal results. Following the pattern that we've seen countless and countless of times, we find the writer again comparing the lesser to the greater. In chapter 10 alone, the writer 
He's uh, already demonstrated for us the sheer inability of the law. That the law in all of its appointed sacrifices utterly failed to do what it was designed by God to do in dealing with the issue of sin. Meaning that the Old Testament law made clear right in its very prescription the inadequacies of that very prescription itself. Because had those sacrifices of old been adequate to cover sins, to perfect us and to cleanse our conscience, then it would all have stopped. That's his argument. His thought process here. But the fact that it didn't, and the fact that the priests of old had to constantly make offerings over and over again, day by day, week by week, year by year, year demonstrated the simple fact that it all fell short of what the system, again, was designed by God to do. Not that the system, the law, fell short, but rather the participants of that system, namely us, sinful humanity, failed. This to say that the law and the sacrificial system and the priesthood and the offerings, all those things all, in the words of J.C. Ryle, had within it an entrenched inability to remove sin. The inadequacies of the law were meant to be manifest in the law itself so that it might then serve as a shadow to direct our eyes to the great realities fulfilled in the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now look down with me to verse 11, and let's read this again together. Verse 11, And every priest stands, ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But, verse 12, a strong contrast, this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Again, in comparing the lesser to the greater, the many priests of the Old Covenant to the one great high priest of the new, the daily offerings made underneath that Old Covenant system to the one final offering made by the Lamb of God Himself. I want to draw your attentions not to the office of the priesthood per se, but I want to draw your attentions to the posture here. The posture. As we studied the Old Covenant and the Old Testament worship, and we've studied the artifacts and the furnitures found within the holy place time and time again in this epistle of Hebrews, I want to ask, has it ever crossed your mind on why we find no seat within the tabernacle or the temple? Why do we not find some kind of stool or chair prescribed within that tabernacle or temple blueprint? Now one might think, and it's how I would think, that for such a lab laborious and burdensome office that the priests held, that there would have been some sort of chair or stool provided for them so that they might sit down and 
rest and quickly catch their breath. Because again, they're working over and over and over again. Now, it's not unreasonable to think like this. And as a matter of fact, I actually think that it would be quite practical. But the reason for why we find no seat or chair to be present within the temple of God was not because there was some sort of divine oversight, but it was intentionally left out by God. It was divinely ordained to leave it out. The absence of a chair was to communicate to the people of God that the job is not done. It was to communicate that there's no time to sit around and relax because there are sins that have yet to be dealt with. Sins that need to be taken care of and covered. This is why, verse 11, why we find the Old Testament priests standing there daily at the temple to make their offerings because they kept falling short, you see. But what posture do we find Jesus in? Verse 12. We find Jesus seated at the right hand of God. Now this begs the question of why, why, why is that? Why do we find Jesus seated at the right hand of God? And the answer is because, unlike the priests of old, Christ has done it. We find Jesus seated because He achieved what He was sent out by His heavenly Father to accomplish. Redemption. Atonement. Salvation. One commentator by the name of William Barclay, he puts it like this, and I love it. He says, the priests stand offering sacrifice while Christ sits at the right hand of God. Theirs is the position of a servant, while Christ, His, is the position of a monarch. Jesus is the King come home, His task accomplished and His victory won. In other words, a seated priest, Jesus, is the guarantee of a finished work. And it's the guarantee of an accepted sacrifice. Jesus sitting down is for us to understand that that is a position of victory. Victory. Now it needs to be said that just because we find Jesus seated upon His heavenly throne with His mission accomplished, does not in any way mean that he's currently idle or simply passing the time. Rather, it's on the basis of his finished work and his once-for-all sacrifice, if we have to turn there, but Hebrews 7.25, that we know that he is right now, as we speak, as you're listening, living to make intercession for those who are found in him. But not only do we find Jesus seated and making intercession for the saints of God. But we read in verse 13, if you again look down with me, that he's waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. 
Now, what the writer is doing here is quoting Psalm 110, which is perhaps one of his favorite psalms to quote. He's done it multiple times already. But in quoting Psalm 110, we find that Jesus is at this very moment also waiting. He's waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. And again, another question pops up here. The question is, who are his enemies? Simply put, without elaborating too much, the, uh, the enemies of God are those who at any time reject and deny Jesus as the living Son of God. The enemies referred to here in this passage are those who have failed to bow their knee to the King, Jesus. Now, as we find Jesus here waiting, I need to make very clear here, perhaps a sort of a warning that you must not take Jesus' waiting and misconstrue it to be some kind of weakness of Christ, as some, have to, some try to actually do in the past. It's not a weakness of Christ, and people have thought to themselves, Jesus has to wait? What kind of God has to wait? These are the accusations that people have actually said. If Jesus has to wait for his enemies to be made his footstool, doesn't that mean that he's not in control? If Jesus has to wait, isn't the very nature of him waiting for something to happen demonstrate that he's not sovereign, that he's not God? Addressing these very same accusations in the 5th century, in the early church, John Chrysostom, some of you might, his name might sound familiar to you, John Chrysostom, an early church father, he responded to these sort of accusations by writing this. He writes, the waiting of God is not a weakness, but the Son of God delays in the subjugation of, en of every enemy now hear this, for the sake of the faithful that would afterward be born. In other words, this waiting is not a weakness of Christ, but rather a great mercy of God, you see. It's a great mercy of God, especially upon those of you in here who have yet to trust in Him. Especially for those of you who go on about week after week resisting and putting off the free gift of Christ. Who put off repentance, actively delaying yourselves by living in a state of disobedience. Now friends, if this describes you this night, you must know that at this very moment, God is showing to you personally the greatest of mercies, the greatest of patience. God is showing you abundant mercy by waiting for you to turn to Him. The delay that we read of here must never, must never be counted as a weakness of God, but as the prolongation of the day of grace, my friend. A precious token of mercy and patience of God. Second Peter 3, we read, The Lord is not 
slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, unbelievers with us tonight, the matter of fact here is this. If you have yet to bow the knee to Christ as King, you are right now in this very present moment defying the King of Heaven. You are at this very moment dangerously living as the enemy of God. But it's for you to know the most marvelous of news that this enthroned Christ just as we have learned time and time again, just as He is both judge and justifier, He is both the enemy and friend of sinners. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, we read, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Romans 5. Unbelievers, would you not like to receive this sort of reconciliation through Jesus this day? If so, you must run to Jesus. You must throw yourselves and flee into the arms of Jesus while He in His abundant mercies waits for you. Look down at verse 14. We continue on. We read, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And notice this verse, it begins with the word for, for you grammarians. For, which gives reason for why Jesus is seated and why Jesus is waiting for his final triumph. The reason for why Jesus is seated, why we find him waiting, is because by his one offering, he has perfected forever what he was sent to perfect, namely, as we read, those who are being sanctified. In other words, there's nothing else that's required to be done as far as the work of atonement is concerned. And that because Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Kind of like a tongue twister. Now, what does this mean? What does the writer mean in verse 14? That we have been perfected forever. Because there might be some of you out there who are reading this and listening to this and thinking to yourself, well, I don't feel perfect. As a matter of fact, I feel quite imperfect. I feel dirty and defective. I feel sinful through and through. If Christ, by His one offering, as I read right here, I'm seeing it right here, has perfected me forever, why in the world do I feel the way that I feel? Why do I feel so wretched within myself all the time? So again, what does it mean that we have been perfected? And it means this. It means that through the offering of Jesus, the very goal of the law, the very goal of the old covenant, the very goal of the priesthood and all of its sacrifices have all been brought to its ultimate fulfillment in the new covenant. 
When you read that you have been perfected, it means that through the sacrifice of Jesus, and listen very carefully to this, through the sacrifice of Jesus, it means that you have been brought into a permanent, direct, and personal covenant relationship with God. A a relationship based upon nothing else but the finished work of Jesus. Meaning this, your sins are completely forgiven and access to God has been freely opened. Having been perfected means that you are now, right now, in an unchangeable relationship with Christ. That you are wholly kept by Christ. That you are in a permanent state of having a cleansed conscience. That the guilt of your sins have been satisfactorily removed and paid for. Your ultimate and final salvation thoroughly secured all in Christ. Not to say that you're perfect. Now you need to get this too. This is not to say that you're perfect. But that the salvation that was brought for you and bought for you in Christ is perfect. That through Christ's perfect offering of Himself, friends, you have been perfected. And if that offering of Jesus is perfect and thus applied to you, then there exists nothing else for it to do but to thoroughly accomplish all that God had intended it to do for you. See, And that for how long? You look down. How long? You read forever. It's forever. Now for who? We read not to everybody, not to everyone, not to those who merely know the gospel, not to those who do good things and good good deeds, and not to those who go and attend church week by week, and not to those who sing songs and listen to sermons. But we read here, but for those who are being sanctified. Now there are two aspects, if we read this verse, and you might have caught it, two aspects of sanctification that we find here in verse 14. In one aspect, because of the work and offering of Jesus, for the saints of God found in Christ, we read that we have been, again, perfected forever, past tense. It's a done deal. Stamped. It's final on. This is exactly what we studied two weeks ago in verse 10 when we read by that will that is Jesus fulfilling the perfect will of God, we have been sanctified, past and completed action, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so what the writer is communicating through verse 14 is that the sanctification or perfection here is a definitive, it's a definitive act whereby God definitively purifies us from all sin and sets us into a relationship with Christ or with Him through Christ in that for forever, eternity. But we also find in verse 14, now the second aspect here, that sanctification is also a progressive thing for those who are being present participle, who are being sanctified. 
And so on the one hand, you can say that you've been sanctified definitively once for all through the sacrifice of Jesus, while simultaneously say that the once for all sanctification is now working itself out in a process of continual growth in holiness in Christ-likeness. It's the same, not the same thing, but both true. This to say that sanctification must be understood as being both definitive and progressive. Both as perfect tense and present tense. Now, Now, each and every one of us in this room tonight, each and every one of us needs to understand the order, the distinct order that's laid out for us here in this verse. And I can't stress just how important it is that we get this absolutely right. And here's the order. It's the definitive act of sanctification that serves as the very foundation to the process of being sanctified. See that? In other words, the ongoing sanctification that's presently working itself out in our lives, happening in your life right now as a believer, is not the basis upon which you have been perfected. Now let me say that again because there's some of you who really need to get this. The ongoing sanctification that's presently happening in your life as a believer is not the basis upon which you have been perfected. Now, there are some of you who read verse 14 and you clearly understand what's being communicated here in God's word. But then as soon as you close this book and go on about living your life, you live in such a way to reverse that order. Rather than understanding that it was by that one perfect offering of Christ that He perfected forever those who are being sanctified, you then live your lives in such a way to communicate that it's by somehow by your ongoing sanctification that you make yourself perfect. It doesn't work like that. This is not what God says through His Word here. God cleansing you and Saving you and perfecting you is not based upon what happens out here in our life. It has absolutely nothing to do with your ongoing sanctification, your ongoing holiness. The only correlation here between these two aspects of sanctification is that the ongoing work of sanctification is the result of what Jesus has done for you. It's the result of what Jesus has done and accomplished for you by offering Himself up, you see. Beloved, you must recognize here the great danger that exists in reversing that order. It's no small thing. To reverse it, to do so, in the words of John Calvin, would be to tear Christ to pieces. How true is that? Transitioning now to our second point, it's going to be quick. Moving from eternal perfection to eternal results. The writer in verses 15 and 18, he makes his final closing statement by recapping the 
the finality of the new covenant. Verse 15, let's read this together. We read, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds and I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And as you read this, you might be thinking Jeremiah 31. But you're right. In quoting Jeremiah 31, that great passage on the promise of the new covenant, the writer communicates that the result or the effect of Christ's perfect mediation and sacrifice in offering himself up is the very fulfillment of the new covenant. That the Holy Spirit is testifying that apart from the once for all sacrifice of Jesus, the new covenant could have never been brought to its fulfillment. And I want you to notice here that there are two specific parts of the new covenant that the writer utilizes here in his closing statement. First, the renewal and transformation of the heart. Through the offering of Jesus' sacrificial work, the new covenant has been affected in such a way that believers are transformed, not from without, but from within. The best that the old covenant could do was deal with the external thing. The best that it offered was address the outward things to life. But at the end of the day, as I've previously stated in the beginning, the old covenant, it exposed itself to be incredibly lacking. It was an incredibly lacking covenant. The law had absolutely no power to change the sinful human heart. And no heart was ever historically ever changed nor transformed because of the law or obeying the law. But now, because of the perfect offering of Christ, because of His accomplished work of atonement, we find that the result is that the new covenant has been affected in such a way that believers today are now changed. Not outwardly, not in the exterior, not just the facade, but from within. Sinful human hearts renewed and transformed in that by God taking His law and sketching it, writing it upon our hearts and our minds so that through the sacrifice of Jesus, we can then be made into new creatures, made anew. And there are some of you in here tonight who need to be made new. There are some of you who need to recognize that you cannot make yourself new. Nor can you force yourself to become a new creation by yourself. Somehow thinking to yourself, how can I do this? I'm reading all this. Sounds great. But how do I do this? Only for you to think that to yourself than to try to make yourself uh, new with a little bit more resolution. Need more resolution. I just need to put in more effort to try to make yourself new with a little more determination only to find yourself in the very same place that you started. And so friends, hear this. The only way that you can truly change 
is by the Holy Spirit witnessing to you the person of Jesus Christ. That it's his perfect offering that you must trust in. And that it's to the one great high priest that you must look to. And it's only then will you by his grace be made anew, transformed inside out. And what are the results? The second part, verse 17, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. The terms of this new covenant promise is that it makes full provision for the past as well as the future. Not only is God's law implanted within the very hearts of those who are redeemed so that we might know him and glorify God, but also we find here that the rebellion of our past unregenerate lives, our sins of old, have been thoroughly removed from God's remembrance. And beloved, what freeing news it is to hear this, is it not? That when the heart and mind are transformed and renewed, that sin has been completely dealt with and taken away forever by Christ. That the burden of sin and guilt has it's been lifted off of our backs. And it's there within that very sense of feeling that lightness where we find the true sense of eternal freedom. And I've heard this before in many of your testimonies. That when you came to Christ, you felt free. You felt light. The law, the priesthood, and the blood of, blood of bulls and goats fell short of what it was designed by God to accomplish. Again, not that God fell short of what he designed it to do, but we fell short in our sins. And thus the writer concludes his whole argument his closing statement in verse 18. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Pretty self-explanatory. Where there exists real and authentic, genuine removal of sin, there no longer exists any need for additional sacrifice. All this because the price which has been paid in full the work of redemption accomplished, full forgiveness provided through the blood of Christ, sins decisively dealt with at Calvary's cross. As we draw our time to a close, I want to quickly address and uh, spend some time quickly to encourage the believers here, the saints of God in here, who can clearly see and recognize their sins, but perhaps have lost their peace and their assurance with God. And I know that there are some of you out there. With all that we've studied in God's word this evening, God speaks to you. And it's for you to remember this simple yet profound truth that the Lord's acceptance of you has never and will never be based upon your performance. And that he will never reject nor deny you because of your per performance. Even though it's poor. As bad as it may look like. You must remember that God's acceptance of sinners is solely on the basis of what Christ has done and achieved. 
Yes, your sins are great. Yes, they're dark. Yes, they're offensive. But you must never be so fixated upon your own sins that you disregard your Savior. You must look away from your shame and look to Christ. You must look to Christ and consider your Savior. You must remind yourself time and time again, day by day, of his glorious works for you. Brothers and sisters, you must know that this work of salvation, it does not belong to you. It does not belong to you. This work of salvation does not belong to you, nor will it ever belong to you. You must tread very carefully and never think so highly of yourself as if you can ever take part in your own salvation. To believe that your acceptance to God has anything to do with you and your own self-efforts, you must never think that. Because to do so is not only to revert back into that old covenant system, but even more seriously, it's to belittle the work of the accomplished work of the Savior that Christ himself has achieved for you. Church, our passage tonight should convince us all afresh that it truly is the most glorious and wonderful thing to be called a Christian. To know that we have in our own very possession what we need most. To know that all of our sins have been forgiven. To know that we have peace with God. To have our consciences cleansed. To be right with God. To know that we, as we go through life, as we face the grave, and as we look forward to eternity to come, that we are forever secure. Oh, what a pleasure it is for us to know that because of Christ, that God considers us not as his enemies, but as his children. What glorious truths we have in Jesus, do we not? Let's pray. Oh Lord, while Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Oh Lord, we rejoice in that we have a great high priest who offered not many, not in plurality, but one sacrifice for sins and that forever. That we have a Savior in Jesus who is now seated upon the throne. And that, be, and that because he has done it. Because he has accomplished what we in the old covenant could never have done. And so we pray that we would never dare try to add or do what has already been finished for us. But that we in great humility would simply look to Christ. That we would simply trust in him who has done all things for us. We pray these things in the name of the one who has perfected forever, those being sanctified, Christ Jesus. Amen.